Okay, we are going to start where we left off last time. That's in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. And we are going to spend the entire time today on one verse, because it is an amazing verse. So remember what had happened is Hannah was barren. The other woman in the home, the younger woman, had several children and used to make fun of her and ridicule her. And the Bible calls her Hannah's rival, but Hannah would pray and seek the Lord. So she got this, this, this confirmation from the Lord that something would indeed happen. And so look in verse 19 of 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 19. Then they arose and went in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. So, verse 19 says, this is an amazing verse. So remember, Elkanah is the husband, he's a good man. He was ministering to his wife as, as she was, she was uh, feeling re- really, really uh, uh, hurt because she couldn't have a child, which is certainly understandable. And he tried the best he knew how, but now God has come. It says, they arose early in the morning and they worshipped before the Lord. So here they are in Shiloh. They have to go all the way back to Ramah. So I don't know how many days of travel this is, of walking. But yet... Before they were going to leave Shiloh, they arose early in the morning. So when did they arise? Early in the morning. And what did they do early in the morning? They worshipped the Lord. The family arose early in the morning and worshipped the Lord. When you establish your families, it would be really good if you take on that practice. When my daughter was about three years old and the other daughter was about one year old, my father-in-law said to me, You know, I know you pray with your kids at night before they go to bed, and you're a really busy guy, but you really ought to spend a concerted time in the morning with your family, getting them together in the morning and and having a, a, a family devotional time. And that is the best piece of advice that I ever took. And from that day, I started getting my kids up in the morning. And even to this day, there's one kid that's left at home, 5.30 in the morning, he gets up, we spend 5.30 to 6 a.m. together as a family, and I'm out the door at 6. So, you know, I'm out the door at 6, and I come home at 6 for dinner. So I put in a long day, but we have established that time in the morning. And I did it with all my children. We would memorize scripture together, we would pray together, I'd read a portion together, we'd get down on our knees and pray with each other. This is a good practice to do. It is not unusual in the scriptures it was there. It says Jesus would arise in the morning while it was still dark before anyone else was awake in, in Mark chapter 1. And he would go off to a lonely place and he would pray there. It says that even though they were about to go on a long trip, they felt that it was worthwhile waking up and worshipping God. So you're busy? Are you busy? It is still worthwhile to wake up and to worship God. These were godly people. They rose up early in the morning and they worshipped before the Lord. And they returned again to their, to their house in Ramah. The NIV says they returned again to their home in Ramah. They had a home. They had a place to go. A home is a precious thing. 
And we may take it as, as, you know, just a matter of fact that people have this thing, but there are lots of people have houses, but they don't have homes. To have a home where you can go, where there's a mother and a father and children and life, this is a good thing. And there are practices in the Scriptures that we can follow that will get us there. And the fun thing about ministering to people your age is that there's not all this past history yet where you've blown through two or three marriages. So I can share this with you without heaping guilt on you. Because this is something that is an absolute treasure. You want to establish your homes this way. A home is a treasure. God says that that, uh, the people that seek Him, He will establish them in homes. The Scripture says it is a blessing to have a home. They had a home life. They returned again to their home. It says, and Elkanah had relations with Hannah. And in the footnote it says, and Elkanah knew his wife. You know, so this is this this word. The literally the word is knew. Elkanah knew his uh, knew his wife. That means he had relations with her. There are other portions in Scripture, and even in First and Second Samuel, for example, when David uh, uh, had relations with Bathsheba, it says that 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 uh, uh, and he slept with her. But you see that that doesn't have this sense of he knew her. The man knew his wife. The sexual relationship in the confines of marriage is such a beautiful thing. And men don't understand this. Married men so often don't understand this. And they don't understand the value of this. And we're going to spend a lot of time on this. He had relations with Hannah and his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So look at the bookends of the home and married life and the sexual married life. The bookends are they worshipped God together... And the Lord remembered her. God is on each side of this thing. It's not like God is outside of the sexual relationship within marriage. He's very much involved in it. And it is a good and a right thing. Part of the expression of marriage is having children in this sexual relationship. People will say these days, a guy will say to a girl walking around campus, hey, let's go play tennis together. Want to go to a movie together? Let's go eat together. Let's go sleep together. It's part of the sequence of things that guys and girls do. And then if the girl gets pregnant, it's a huge, huge problem. And very often that problem is done away with. But the residues, of that in the human heart of both the guy and the girl never go away. But if you look in the confines of marriage, when the woman becomes pregnant, it's like the happiest day of their lives as a couple together. When you find out, you know, when I found out that my wife was pregnant, I was so happy. This is a good thing. And so what happens is we exchange What should be the best news of our lives to a tragedy? When something that was intended for marriage is taken outside the confines of marriage. I'm going to read you some portions from my teaching on scriptural sexual ethics. It's all on the internet now. I'm not going to go back into it again because it's too involved and too hard for me. 
But I'm going to read you some portions from this. So if you're interested, you can go to my website, jmtour.com, or just Google Jim Tour. Go to the personal topics, the audio messages, and a series on scriptural sexual ethics. You listen from part one through part six. You just listen in that way. But here's some pieces from this because it's what this portion, this one little verse underscores is what happens when you worship God, have a home, when a man knows his wife, has that relationship with his wife, and children are a result. What a blessing that is, rather than sleeping around. Both liberals and conservatives undervalue sex. Liberals often have no clue how valuable sex is. If they did, they wouldn't use it so liberally. Conservatives are often fearful of dealing with issues of, se- uh, of sexuality because their self-repression of their lust has caused them a fantasy life that is self-condemning. And if you think about it, say a, a, a person is born, 20 years old, they have a child, that child now grows up to be 20 years old, they have a child, and so on. If you say it's 20 years, roughly, sometimes it's 25 years now in our culture, maybe 30 years, but just, let's just say 20 years historically. If it's 20 years from the time a person is born till the time that they are having their own children, then 20 times 100 equals what? 2,000. 100 sexual acts link us today with 2,000 years ago, the time of Christ. 200 sexual acts make 4,000 years, link us with the time of Abraham. 300 sexual acts bring us back 6,000 years, the dawn of human history, the dawn of recorded human history. 300 sexual acts link this. If one of those sexual acts had not taken place, you would not be here. The choices that men and women make in the sexual realm take on the weight of human existence and underpin all of human history. Do you see how important these things are? Though a man in his married life may have a hundred sexual acts with his wife in a year, of the sexual acts that bring forth a life, only twenty Only a hundred of them link us back to the time of Christ. Only three hundred of them link us back to the dawn of human history. If an alcoholic cannot say no to his next drink, he's enslaved to alcohol. If you can't say no to sex, then what does your yes mean? The world says that sexual freedom and having sex All you want, all the time, and with whoever you want, is a good thing. But such a response is not real freedom. It's bondage. If if addictions dictate, you're enslaved. Most of us, most of us eat out of a dumpster when it comes to things in the sexual realm. Most people eat out of a dumpster, and they think that this is all they have, because a dumpster is better than nothing. But most people think that in the sexual realm... Eating out of a dumpster is what, is what it really is. But there is more to life than this dumpster. And if you have ever felt 
that there must be more to the sexual relationship than eating out of a dumpster, that is the beginning of faith. That is the beginning of faith. The problem with men is it hurts men to surrender their lustful drive because men feel that that's all we've got. That's what it is to be a man. And I'm not here to throw stones and I'm not here to judge. And if you listen to this series, I am very frank with my own life, with my own past. So I'm not throwing stones at anyone. We're all in this together. But we have to walk in God's light. God has light for us, as we discussed in that scriptural passage, of worshipping Him, of having a home, and then knowing our spouse properly, and then having children. That encompasses God remembering us with children. That encompasses human life and human existence. And that is what people long for. Long for. You haven't... You don't have all the, the, the baggage of, of divorces just piled up in your life. But when you do, and I pray you don't, you would look back on this and you'd say, boy, he was right. These are powerful things, and you want to get this thing right. Let me read to you some portions from The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Who's read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? All right, so in The Great Divorce... Heaven and hell, he says, are quite separate things because he was writing a book to address another book that had been written where it had been written that heaven and hell are just one. And he was saying, no, they're quite separate things. And he describes people coming to the gates of heaven and choosing to take the steps needed to get in or going back and not going in. And he describes a dark, oily ghost and what this is, it's a former man, a man that had died, and he's nearing heaven's gate. So he's coming up to heaven's gate. And he can't get in exactly the way he is. And he's confronted by an angel. But this oily ghost, former man, has a lizard on his shoulder, chattering. It's a chattering lizard, and the lizard is a lizard of lust, chattering on his shoulder. So does everybody get the picture? Man dies. He's going up to heaven. He's not going to get in yet because there's things that have got to be cleansed out. And some people, even at that point, choose not to go in because they don't want to give things up. It's a story, okay? On the man's shoulder is a lizard, the lizard of lust chattering, and he meets an angel at heaven's gate. That's the picture. What sat on the ghost's shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in the ghost's ear. The ghost said to the lizard, Shut up, I tell you. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. The ghost meets a shining angel, making an appeal to the ghost, saying, May I kill the lizard? The ghost says, Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it, said the angel. The ghost replied, I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The angel said, the gradual process is of no use at all. And after much conversation, you, you really need to read the book, but the lizard awoke and made one last appeal to the ghost to make the choice not to have him killed. The lizard said to the ghost, be careful, the angel can do what he says. He can kill me, then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? 
you'd only be sort of a ghost, not a real man as you are now. And I'll be good. I admit, I'll admit, I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh, almost innocent. The angel said, have I your permission to kill the lizard? I cannot kill it without your permission. Finally, the angel was granted permission by the ghost, so the angel grabbed the lizard and broke its back and threw it to the ground. The ghost also fell and appeared dead. But then the ghost started to rise and he became an immense man, naked, not much larger than the angel, with strong legs and hands and shoulders. The lizard came to life as the great stallion I had, as a great stallion that I had never seen such a thing, silvery white, but with a mane of t- uh, but with a mane and tail of gold. Each stamp of its hoof made the land shake. Horse and new-made man breathed into their, each other's nostrils. The man leapt upon the stallion, and the two were like a shooting star, scaling what seemed impossible steeps until they vanished into the everlasting morning. The teacher said, What is the lizard compared to the stallion? Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared to the riches and energy of desire which arise when lust has been killed. So what the picture that C.S. Lewis paints is of this lizard being put to death and rises as a stallion. The ghost also dying and coming back as a real man. Almost the size of an angel. The stallion and the man breathe into each other's nostrils. The man leaps upon the stallion and they ride off into heaven's glory. Men don't want to give up lust because we think it's all we have. And we never know what Elkanah experienced in 1 Samuel 1.19 where he knew his wife. So that men, when they get in marriage, they feel that this woman doesn't interest me anymore. I mean, she's all worn out. You know, I've been having sex with her for two years now. I'm on to someone else. Because he has never known what it is to know his life, nor has he ever dealt with this lizard that's been chattering upon his shoulder. Because we feel that lust is all we have, and without it, we'd never be real men. But lust is the disordered desire to take that which is not mine... For my own gain. Lust is the disordered desire to take that which is not mine for my own gain. And I'm picking particularly on men, but what I have seen in the last decade or so is that young women, because of where our society is, are very much struggling with the same sorts of lust that men have traditionally struggled with. You know, even a wife who's been married to a man for 20 years would feel uncomfortable if her husband's gaze at her was lustful instead of guided by true love. But just as the ghost was carrying the lizard, Christians must be willing to die and to grant permission for the lizard of lust to be killed so that we can be raised to something far more glorious. And there is no other way There's no other way. 
This path from the dumpster to the banquet must go through the cross. And Jesus Christ gives the victory in this. So what God has for us is like what Elkanah saw. That they rose up early in the morning and they worshipped together. That there was a family life that was around God. And then they went to their home and he knew her. doesn't say he slept with her. He knew her. That word translated means new. He knew her. There was a relationship there and God remembered her. The bookends of the family life. Worship of God and God remembers us. And that brings this amazing peace and stability in the home. There are three ways that we can deal with lust. Three ways. And here is what they are. One way is that we can indulge, and I don't recommend that one. It leads to constant discontentment and disillusionment, and will ultimately destroy your marriage and possibly your life. But that is one of the major ways that the world follows. And what happens is, after one of those relationships, we, we sort of feign solace in this, but it is never gotten. And only the hardest heart can continue in this and to somehow rationalize that it's good. Another way to deal with lust is to suppress it. And that's where most Christian education will lead us. And it ends up in turning a rocket engine on oneself because the desire is so utterly strong. It's like turning a rocket engine upon ourselves. This is where most Christian education is that I will suppress this lust. And young men in particular explode. The fantasy life goes crazy. And it leads to disordered thoughts of all types, fantasizing about another, while even in the sexual act of marriage. That's where it leads. It leads men into marriage, and then when they're having sex in marriage, they're fantasizing about another woman. You say it can't happen. It happens all the time, all the time. And women have looked at me with this incredible belief. And then I turn to their husband and I say, do you know what I mean? And their husbands say not a word. And their wives look over at them shocked. I know what I'm talking about in this. I have counseled with many and I have lived it. I am trying to spare you. We're like whitewashed tombs looking good on the outside, but bursting within when we suppress this thing. And unable to control the acts of masturbation, even in marriage. It also makes us most judgmental of, the, of those that indulge, because we long to be able to do what they do, but we chain ourselves and we can only spit in rage. That's what happens with suppression. 
But here is the best way, and it's called redemption. Redemption. Men, this is what you say. This is the prayer you pray. I thank you, Lord, for the beauty of this woman. She is made in the image of God. By the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, may I never use her as an object of my own lustful gain. And by that power, please untwist in me that which sin has twisted. And may I come to see my sexuality rightly. I'm going to repeat that. This is the prayer you pray, men. I thank you, Lord, for the beauty of this woman. She's been made in the image of God. By the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, may I never use her as an object for my own lustful gain. And remember, lust is taking something which does not belong to us for our own pleasures. And by that power, please, untwist in me that which sin has twisted, and may I come to see my own sexuality rightly. And I have prayed this prayer over and over and over again in my life. And guess what? God answers. God answers. Go figure. You pray and God answers. What a novel concept. God answers. So that when you're confronted, men, with some woman who may not even be dressed appropriately because she doesn't understand. And even if she does understand what it does to men, that you pray this prayer and God will answer. Or you're going through the the, the pornographic line at the checkout counter at at, at the supermarket. And all these pictures and images right in front of you. You pray that prayer. And God will answer. I thank you for the beauty of this woman. She has been made in the image of God. May I never use her for my own lustful gain. Untwist in me that which sin has twisted and let me see my own sexuality rightly. And God answers. Jesus said... The Bible says in James, you do not receive because you do not ask. If you don't ask, you won't receive. Ask and receive. Women, here's what you pray. Because you too can be drawn into the same things and learn the very same patterns. I thank you, Lord, for this man. He has been made in the image of God. By the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, may I never use him or seduce him for an object of my own physical or emotional gain. And by, the, by that power, please untwist in me that which sin has twisted, and may I come to see my sexuality rightly. You pray this prayer. So remember, lust is the disordered desire to take that which is not mine and use it for my own gain. And lust has this absolutely overwhelming power. As C.S. Lewis said, a man, if he were given opportunity, could populate an entire city. It could happen. And you look at this, you say, God, why did you make me this way? That it should be so overwhelming. So imagine... If you get this rightly, the power it can have in marriage. 
so that you rise to be a different man rather than an oily ghost. Strong and muscular. And this lizard of lust becomes a great stallion. And you breathe into each other's nostrils. And this is exercised rightly in marriage. It has this amazing power. There are three ways to deal with lust. You indulge, you suppress, or you redeem it. And I recommend redemption. Because the others lead to terrific pain. And I have been there. Redemption is the only thing that will result in victory over lust. Marriage does not take away lust. And if you don't get the lust dealt with rightly, young men, what will happen is, in marriage, you will subject your wife to a terrible existence of objectification. And she will feel it, she will know it, and she will know what is happening at that very moment because she, God has given her these antennas to know. And in marriage, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Such that you can pray even before you go to bed together. And you say, why? Where's the spontaneity in this? Well, let me tell you something. You can have a five-year-old kid spontaneously go up to a piano and bang away at it. And it's a terrible sound. Or you can take this kid and begin to give them piano lessons. And they can spontaneously then become a, go up to a piano and make it have life. Spontaneously. It doesn't ruin spontaneity at all when you get this thing right. And you can go in prayer. And then you go in union in marriage. And it becomes a beautiful thing. So that as it says, they woke up early in the morning and they worshipped God. They went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife. And God remembered her. The bookends of God, beginning in worship, God remembering, are there in marriage. And it doesn't come outside of marriage. Never has, never will. And it will lead to pain. And it will lead to relationship after relationship after relationship. You think, why doesn't this ever work with me? Why doesn't it ever work? You do God's way and it will work. You don't and it won't. God is very clear on this. You want this right. In marriage, it is such a beautiful thing. I love the relationship that I have with my wife. You go through this, this series on scriptural sexual ethics on my website. It will teach you. How you can even renew your marriage vows in this very act. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. What happens in marriage when you get this right? And most Christian education brings people to this place of suppression. Where the thought life goes absolutely crazy. But you get this right. And your home is such a pleasant place. And the relationship, this one woman to this one man, is so rich and so good. I love to be with my wife. I love it. And if she's up late watching Peyton Manning on some football game, I'm like, would you just come to bed? I just, just want to just be next to her. I love my wife. And I, I, I think she reciprocates. 
in that. I want you to experience this. This is the joy that I want you to have. I want you to be spared what happens to 50% of the marriages in the church, and that is divorce. I want you to be spared of that. That's why I'm sharing with you this treasure. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word, for what was exemplified in Elkanah and Hannah, and how they started with worship and you remembered them. Father, thank you that you can take the marriages of these young people and start it out with God and have them end up with God and just embrace this in the presence of God. Father, I pray that they would come to know what it is to have sexuality done rightly and scripturally in their lives and in their upcoming marriages. Father, have mercy on them, I pray. Father, have mercy on them that they would not indulge or suppress for both of those lead to death. But learn what it is to walk in redemption. Father, when these young men pray and ask you to give them power over this lust, this lizard of lust, that they would see young women rightly, Father, answer their prayers, I pray. Because of the goodness of Jesus, remember them. And for these young women, when they pray that prayer, remember them, Lord, to give them victory, that they would not seduce or use men for physical or emotional gain. Father, but they would get this rightly. That good marriages would ensue. For Jesus' sake, and in His name, I commit them to You. Amen.